Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Sports Travel Podcast, where we interview leaders in the sports event industry. This is Jason Kowartz, editor and publisher of Sports Travel, and our guest on this episode is a man who in many ways is responsible not only for this podcast, but for sports travel as a magazine and our team's conference and eSports travel summits as events. I'm referring to Tim Schneider, the founder of all those brands and who serves now as the chairman of the sports division at North Star Meetings Group. In this conversation, we talk with Tim about the origins of sports travel magazine and the sports event industry itself, the growth of sectors such as esports, and the role that sports-related travel will play in the nation's economic recovery. It's a wide-ranging conversation with someone who I've been proud to call my colleague now for nearly 13 years, and we think you'll find the backstory of Sports Travel Magazine an interesting one to hear, as it holds many lessons that still apply today for professionals who were involved in the organizing and hosting of sports events at all levels. But before we begin, here's a word from the sponsor of this episode. Nothing brings people together like sports, and no place brings people together like the beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. There, you'll find first-class facilities and an experienced planning team that will make sure your sports event or esports event goes off without a hitch. And when the games end is when the real play begins, because the beach is 60 miles of endless activities and entertainment for all ages. Your event belongs at the beach. Start planning at MyrtleBeachSports.com. And now, on to the conversation. Tim Schneider is a name that many in our audience will be familiar with. If you're not, it was Tim who had the initial vision for the concept of Sports Travel Magazine, which next year will be celebrating its 25th year serving the sports event industry. He launched the magazine as an offshoot of an earlier magazine, Association News, after noticing that sports event organizers were reading that Meeting Planner publication looking for potential venues for their events. That was at a time when sports-related travel and the notion of sports tourism was still taking hold in many conventions and visitors' bureaus. That entrepreneurial spirit has paid off well for Tim, who used that insight to eventually launch our team's conference and expo, and then later the eSports Travel Summit. In April 2017, his Schneider Publishing Company merged with North Star Travel Media and today represents North Star's sports division that continues to publish sports travel and operate our live events. Tim's investment in the travel and hospitality industry, however, goes much deeper than the sports market. He served two terms on the board of directors, for the National Association of Sports Commissions, now known as the Sports Events and Tourism Association, or Sports ETA, but he's also the former chair of the Destination and Travel Foundation, and he remains a go-to resource for many in the larger travel industry who are looking for some insight into just where things are headed. In a sign of his respect in the industry, Tim was inducted into the inaugural class of the Sports ETA Hall of Fame when that program was launched in 2017. It's virtually impossible to have a conversation with Tim and not come away with some kind of insight on the travel industry, sports-related travel, destination marketing, or a look ahead at the next trends in the space. In that regard, I consider him a visionary and someone that I really enjoyed having the chance to sit down with for this episode, especially considering where the travel industry has been this past year. As you'll hear, there's certainly great reason for optimism in the months and years ahead and the new opportunities for destinations that exist, particularly in the areas of esports and now sports wagering that make this an exciting time to be in the industry. We hope you enjoyed this conversation on where our own efforts have been, where the industry is headed, and a little insight into Tim's background as well. Tim Schneider, welcome to the Sports Travel Podcast. Well, thank you very much, Jason. It's a pleasure to be with you. It feels funny to welcome you to the Sports Travel Podcast because without you, there would be no sports travel, let alone 
a sports travel podcast, but it's a pleasure to spend some time with you in conversation. Thank you for saying that, Jason. I think that the things that you've accomplished as editor and publisher of Sports Travel Magazine and all the time that you've been with us have uh, far outweighed any achievements I could lay claim to. Well, that is high praise, especially from a, a first ballot Hall of Famer, such as yourself, for the former National Association of Sports Commissions, now Sports ETA. You have done so much for the industry, Tim, and we thought that it would be nice to take a step back because uh, this has been probably the most challenging year that nearly every industry has faced, including, of course, the sports event industry. And I thought it'd be a good idea just to take a look at where we've been and how this industry has evolved a little bit. And of course, where it's headed after this most unusual past year. And I thought it might make some sense for those who are not familiar, because I think even those who are who have been reading sports travel for a while or attended the team's conference may not themselves be aware of kind of where this all began. And we haven't even talked about this, but we're coming up on a, on a milestone anniversary of sports travel, almost 25 years of the magazine. And so why don't we start there, Tim, with a little bit of history on where in the world sports travel came from in your mind. You're, you're pre presuming, of course, Jason, that I can remember the details of it <laughs> at this point, but it does date back to the 1990s. I had just started uh, my publishing company and was looking for ways to grow. And we were publishing a magazine called Association News which was read primarily by association executives and meeting planners at associations. And I would see reader response cards, which were a thing then, coming in from sports organizations. And I found that curious because there was absolutely nothing about sports in association news magazine. So I picked up the phone and called some of those people. And I said, why are you responding to the advertising you're seeing in association news magazine? And they said, it's because we're looking for places to take our tournaments, our championship events, and we think these convention bureaus might be able to, to help us. So that was sort of the, the light bulb moment for me, and I started doing research. Turned out at that point, there were only a handful of cities with a sports commission or someone at their convention bureau dedicated to the sports-related market. So I decided to shelve the idea, and it was about five years after that that we took up the idea again, and interestingly, at that point, there was now a National Association of Sports Commissions, and it turns out their annual meeting that year was going to be held in Los Angeles, which is where I'm based. So I went to that meeting. We did a kind of a focus group where we invited anyone who would talk to us to lunch, and we ended up having a room full of people which made for an unwieldy focus group. But it turns out that was the uh, uh, forum that really provided the launching pad for Sports Travel Magazine. I think, Tim, that some people take it for granted that there is a thing called the sports event industry, because I would imagine that at that time it was uh, sort of in a fledgling state between the, the cities and the event organizers. You would get a lot of puzzled looks when you talked about the sports event industry back then, especially if you were talking to a convention bureau, because you're right. Sports-related travel has existed for a long, long time, but no one had ever really looked at it as a unique vertical in the travel industry. And that's really what we were trying to do. So with the help of the members of the National Association of Sports Commissions way back then, we launched Sports Travel Magazine in January of 1997. And initially, there was a lot of education to do. 
at that time, I was an avid amateur cyclist and would ride in century rides, which are 100-mile cycling rides. And I went to the central coast of California for one called the Lighthouse Century. And as you drove around uh, San Luis Obispo, California, which is where it started, every hotel parking lot was filled with cars that had bicycle racks on top of them or on the back of them. And I was there for the opening of a new civic center, which happened to occur the same weekend and was traveling around town with one of the CDB reps. And I said, did you notice all these cars with bicycle racks? And the person said, well, yeah, I don't, I don't know what that's all about. I said, well, the Lighthouse Century is starting from here tomorrow. And the CVB person said, the Lighthouse Century? What's the Lighthouse Century? And so that was sort of symptomatic of what we would find back then. These events were going on in towns and cities, and the representatives from the convention bureaus weren't even aware of them, let alone in the position to help them and to take credit for the room nights that they were generating. And so that's the education that we had to do. And it, it was a long, a long process of getting people comfortable with the fact that there were a substantial number of room nights that could be attracted to their destination if they were to work with event rights holders and event organizers to bring sporting events to their cities. Yeah, it is amazing how far along we've come in a relatively short amount of time on that. I mean, you had the magazine, of course, and, and people were able to get the content then. But then shortly after that, obviously, you saw the need for some sort of face-to-face -face interaction, which I imagine is how the Teams conference came about. Well, we started out as sponsors of a number of different events that we thought would be a great meeting place for both event rights holders and destinations. But in looking at that marketplace, there wasn't exactly the mix that I thought would be most productive because usually they were either weighted in one direction or the other. And we had been sponsoring a symposium at George Washington University on the topic of sports-related travel and tourism. And Lisa Delpy-Nerodi, the professor at George Washington, who was on our original reader advisory board for sports travel, had organized the event and had invited us to, to sponsor it and actually said, well, would you mind selling the booths for this event? And so that was where the Teams conference came from originally. It was George Washington University's event. And as time passed, uh, we sort of took over all of the operations of the event and branded it Teams and have built it out from there. It's been a long and, and fascinating journey, but I've, I've loved every minute of it. And for those who have been uh, to a Teams conference in recent years, I imagine those first ones would have looked markedly different. Oh, we had our growing pains to be sure. I remember <laughs> one of the first years we had failed to put a 24-hour hold on the ballroom where the expo <laughs> was set up. And wouldn't you know it, the hotel sold a gala uh, into that ballroom. So we actually had to tear down the exhibitor booths and put them back up overnight. But we took really good care of our exhibitors. From that point forward, I think we would take the mistakes that we make and turn them into learning experiences. And so with the Teams conference, we've always tried to embrace this notion of continuous improvement, of setting the bar in terms of the standard of service that we provide both to exhibitors and attendees. 
And that's what makes it interesting for us. That's what makes it fun is this idea that you can always be learning and that you can always do better than you did the year before. You mentioned uh, Association News Magazine earlier. You were obviously familiar with the travel and hospitality space. Was it interesting to you to watch this development where cities were starting to differentiate themselves and their sports markets over time? Because that may not have been as easy as it sounds early on, I would imagine, for a number of these destinations. No, no. Early on, we had to explain to cities, you know, you've got to start with an inventory. You have to just find out what venues and facilities you have in your destination. And you have to determine what events would be appropriate for those venues in terms of targeting event rights holders. So this was pretty basic. You know, this was sports destination marketing 101. But that was a part of the fun education process that we went through with so many communities. And now it's just, it's, it's incredibly gratifying to see the destinations that would not think of ignoring this market, particularly with what we've been through in the past year plus. Uh, and as we, as we see the industry starting to come back to life now, about the only events we're seeing in convention centers across the country are sporting events. And that speaks to what we've always referred to as the power of sports. It's an incredibly important market for a destination of any size to target. And all of these years of education and of talking with destinations coast to coast, it really has evolved to a point at which they get it, they understand the importance of targeting and serving the sports-related travel market. Yeah, you touched on some of what's been happening in the pandemic, and we'll get there in a minute. But it's been interesting for me, Tim, even in the 13 or so years that I've been on this journey with you as well, seeing that evolution. And one of the most interesting ones these past couple of years has really been what's been happening in esports, which... Uh, you know, we've launched, uh, of course, our own esports travel summit as a separate event from teams after doing some programming there. But in some ways, Tim, does what's happening in esports remind you of where the traditional sports space was back when you were starting the magazine? Absolutely, Jason. There are lots of similarities. Uh, and as you said, we were tracking the growth of competitive video gaming uh, for many years, and it was. 2016, when we launched our first esports specific programming, at that, you know, it went from video gaming, competitive video gaming to esports. And it was along about 2016, 2017 that we saw this evolution of the in person events surrounding video games to take on much greater importance and to actually start generating uh, hotel room nights. And so we thought it was a story that we should be sharing with destinations. And it was amazingly similar to when we started with Sports Travel Magazine and the Teams Conference. The conversations were very similar in terms of, do you know about this market And do you realize that this is a way for your destination to connect with a demographic that you're doing absolutely nothing to attract? And that's people who are 11 to 24 years old. And, you know, people listening to the podcast may say, well, an 11-year-old doesn't do much traveling. 
But if you have an 11-year-old, you know a lot of your travel planning decision-making revolves around what's going to keep the 11-year-old happy and interested and involved. And so- Very just quick, as, we, as, a, as a father of an 11-year-old, I can attest that it, well, that is exactly true. Thanks for backing me up uh, <laughs> on that, Jason. Uh, but as you're looking at the evolution of esports, and of course, the pandemic has has thrown a wrench in the works of a lot of different things. But as you look at the evolution there and the success that esports tournaments, that fan festivals, that multi-title festivals are having, it is very much the next generation of visitor, the next generation of fan and follower, and it would be foolhardy for destinations to not understand that and to not be a part of this amazing evolution that's occurring around esports. What's interesting to me too, Tim, is that it it works on the other side as well from the organizers of esports events who I think are still learning their way around the hospitality industry and in that there are convention bureaus and sports commissions who are out there who can help them. I think that's something traditional sports event organizers uh, figured out quite a while ago. That's been interesting to me too, just to see what's happening on the flip side with event organizers in the esports space. You're getting to experience that 101 that I talked about earlier, just as in traditional sports, you have people who come out of sports, you have people who come out of esports, you know, they have been involved in some facet of it. That doesn't mean they're automatically experts on the hospitality industry or how a convention and visitors bureau or sports commission can bring value to that equation around their in-person events. And so that's a key part of the educational mission that we have, both with Sports Travel Magazine, the Teams Conference, and now the Esports Travel Summit. It's all about not only the connections that we can help make, the relationships that we help forge, but that basic education that allows event organizers to be more successful in the events they plan and allows destinations to attract the widest possible variety of events and visitors to their cities, regardless of their size, really. Yeah, I think esports is a particular challenge, especially for the cities who haven't been involved in the space, kind of that thought of where do you even begin with this? I think most people, when they if they think of it at all, think of these big arenas having these incredibly produced events, and that's obviously happening in the space. But I would imagine for a lot of cities, it's just that taking that first step in when we talk about esports specifically. Well, it is a slightly different environment because you mentioned the the large events uh, that everyone's uh, heard about or is familiar with. Those are typically organized by the publishers of video games. The publishers of video games have higher revenues than the filmed entertainment industry. That's an industry that has just done nothing but grow particularly during the pandemic. And so those organizations, when they do a live event, it's for the purpose of marketing their game title. And so they look less at the sort of ROI that a typical event organizer would look for and more at what is the value of staging this spectacular. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, you have a growing number of what we call esports entrepreneurs who are in the business of organizing events and festivals for the purpose of building a profitable business. And so it's 
somewhere between those two ends of the spectrum where the opportunity lies for cities of different sizes, for cities that have maybe smaller venues or only collegiate-based venues. There's still opportunity out there. And like I said earlier, I think it's a big mistake for a destination to ignore that which is attracting the largest audiences of that next generation. So that's why we're huge proponents of people getting involved with esports. Yeah, one of the things I love about this industry in general is is just seeing that evolution. Even in the time that I've been involved, I think of things like sports wagering right now and what's happening there, where you see this uh, incredible opportunity and like a, a whole different pivot of the industry. You know, a few years ago, we would have had trouble getting anyone, say, for the NFL to even step foot in Las Vegas if we were having an event there. And now not only will they step foot there, they'll have a draft there. In fact, they have an entire team playing there. And uh, that's just in the last couple of years. I won't name names, but we, you know, the professional leagues would oftentimes forbid their representatives from being involved with the team's conference when we were in Las Vegas. Uh, and this year, of course, we're in Atlantic City. So it's, a, a, again, a perfect tie. But what a shift that's occurred since we were last in Atlantic City five years ago. And You'll recall, Jason, we started doing programming at Teams on the Supreme Court decision and the rise of gambling around sports in various states across the country a few years ago now. And again, there were the curious and the, and the puzzled looks from people as to why should this be important to us? But now I think almost every state in the nation realizes that this is going to be a source of revenue and support for their governments. And that's going to affect governmental entities at all levels. So I really do think at, you know, at the state and city level, you're going to see a positive impact from this embrace of, of sports wagering that will have a, a big impact across the sports world. I, I always mention to people, you know, amateur sports in some European countries wouldn't exist if it weren't for wagering, uh, because the gambling supports the governing bodies in, mm -hmm. in a lot of countries. And I don't know if we'll ever get there in the United States, because we do absolutely nothing on a federal government level for sports governing bodies. But it's interesting to keep that in mind and to think about how this, uh, again, it's a phenomenal development, how that can have a positive impact on youth and others who, you know, there's a very positive societal impact to keeping kids involved with sports. And that obviously includes uh, traditional sports. So I'm always optimistic about uh, these changes that we're seeing and how they can have really, really positive ramifications for everyone in the sports and events industries. You are listening to the Sports Travel Podcast. Before we continue, here's a word from the sponsor of this episode. Nothing brings people together like sports, and no place brings people together like the beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. There you'll find first-class facilities and an experienced planning team that will make sure your sports event or esports event goes off without a hitch. And when the games end is when the real play begins, because the beach is 60 miles of endless activities and entertainment for all ages. Your event belongs at the beach. Start planning at MyrtleBeachSports.com. And now, back to the conversation. 
Well, let's talk a bit about kind of where we've been the last year. I mean, you and I live this pretty much every day in uh, the work that we do for the magazine and around our conference uh, following the ins and outs of the industry. But as we said at the outset, this has been just a devastating year in a lot of ways for so many industries, ours included. And yet we're seeing so much resilience on the sports side, I would argue, probably more than maybe even you and I would have necessarily expected as we're starting to emerge from this uh, amazing experience we've all been through. How do you put some of this into perspective, Tim, on what exactly has taken place here in the last year? It's tough to put it in a lot of perspective because we're still living it. And obviously, we have been through a period which none of us could have envisioned. Uh, the loss of life, the the illness, the the people it's touched and affected in our own lives. It makes it very difficult to try to sound authoritative or to bring any sense of perspective to what we've all been through. About the only thing I come, you know, can come back to as I'm having conversations with dear friends in and out of the industry is that if we can make it through what we've been through, what else is ever going to be considered an obstacle to us in the future? And so that's kind of the the perspective that if there, you know, if you call that perspective, that's uh, uh, about all I can bring to it other than saying, one, the only certainty is that we need to be able to deal with uncertainty to lead through periods of uncertainty, because that's been the biggest thing that we've seen both, you know, on the event side, on the event host side, everyone has had to learn to deal with uncertainty that's just been off the charts. The other takeaway for me, though, is the value of relationships. I can tell you a few things have been more gratifying than the conversations I've had with the longtime supporters of what we do, the sponsors, the exhibitors, the attendees at our events, to talk with them and to provide some uh, level of support to them during this time has been one of the most professionally rewarding things that I've been able to accomplish. And I can tell you, the fact that many cities not only maintained their support of what we are about, but signed on during the pandemic. We have cities that signed multi-year contracts during the pandemic to host our events in the future because they are focused on the future. They want to see the positive effects of hosting these events in their communities. That has just said more to me than than any words could ever express or that I can adequately express appreciation for. Because we've all been on the brink here this past year, and yet the relationships abide. The value equation abides. And that's a source of great comfort for me personally and professionally. Well, you know, as we've talk. The industry obviously has been around now for two decades plus strong. And yet, in some ways, it feels like some people are first noticing the value of sports-related travel as we're coming out of the pandemic. Some of the largest events we've seen have, just in general in society, 
have been sports events. You know, we're having this conversation on the heels of the Kentucky Derby, which had tens of thousands of people. Uh, Indianapolis is looking at over 100,000 people for the Indy 500. Just as an example, we're seeing stadiums open up uh, in 100% capacity in some in some cases. And I know you've had it as well. I've had it where uh, people are kind of looking to us in some respect, uh, maybe a little surprised or wondering how this could be the case. And yet uh, here we are seeing sports, I would argue, play a, a pretty pivotal role in, in helping us all get back. Well, I was talking about uh, things that abide and that have, uh, that, uh, you know, are just unquestionable. And the fact that sports is our common language, I think has never been clearer. Uh, we've lived through a period of incredible political divisiveness. We've lived through this period of just trauma. But there is something about sports and sporting activities that lifts us, that gives us hope. And I think that that's what you're seeing in communities around the country as, as people are yearning to get back to that activity in common, to that common language of sports. And so I'm very optimistic that we'll continue to see sporting events as the first gathering place in communities. And then I hope that we get to see a lot of other gatherings and the value of people coming together is probably greater now than it was pre-pandemic. There's a real yearning for it. We're seeing that at the North Star events that have already been relaunched in person. Uh, and I think that you'll see that at this year's Teams Conference and at the Esports Travel Summit later this year. People really do thrive as a result of their in-person interactions with others. And don't get me wrong, we're not going to take chances. We will be producing the safest events possible, but we are adherents to the notion that there is nothing that beats an in-person event for developing and deepening business relationships. So we're absolutely committed to the recovery of the entire ecosystem around live events. Yeah, I feel like we should note one of our partners, Tim, because it's it's got to be amazing for you considering where you were at the start of Sports Travel Magazine to know that we are now partners with the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, something that's going to be continuing. Of course, we talk about events and the Olympics and Paralympics are right around the corner, which I think will be a you know a global touchstone once both of those events get on their way. Is it uh, does it surprise you at all when you look back at where things began to think that we're in a place now where the U.S. OPC is among our among our partners? I think as children, Jason, we all dream of. <laughs> of being an Olympic or Paralympic champion. It really is the pinnacle of sports achievement. And so from the very beginning, we were huge supporters of then the U.S. Olympic Committee, of all of the Olympic national governing bodies, the community-based organizations, all of those groups that share the Olympic family, the Olympic and Paralympic family. We were supportive of them and sponsors of them. And so to now have the Teams Conference be the official co-location partner of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Sports Link and NGB Best Practices Seminar, it's incredibly gratifying that we can play some small role in supporting the team behind Team USA. And they need our help. They need everyone's support. 
because they're facing the same set of circumstances that we're all dealing with, and they're trying to do the Olympic Games this summer. And I think that that is going to really be an interesting case study in how you take your brand equity and manage to realize it under the most difficult circumstances. And I'm just delighted, Jason, that you're planning to be in Tokyo for the Games. I am. Uh, I am excited about it. The Olympics, what can you say about the Olympics and Paralympics? It's just um, among the best uh, events you can attend or, or be a part of. And I thought, Tim, even in the in the last few minutes that we have together here, you talked about the dreams that you have as a kid or people might have as a kid, uh, being an Olympian or Paralympian. Let's end with a little uh, personal note here, Tim. I, people have seen you on stage at Teams and they've seen your face in the magazine, of course. But talk to me about Tim as a kid. Were there particular teams that you followed? Were you were you into sports? What was uh, What was your own sports background? Well, so I talk a lot about, and I don't tend to personalize things too much because it's not about me or my story, but I grew up a big baseball fan because my dad was a baseball fan. He was a a lifelong fan of the Kansas City Royals and would take the Royals with him. Uh, On a transistor radio, if necessary, he would listen to every game and you know, there's, and you have a young son, I have two sons. And as they grow older, it becomes more and more difficult to find sort of those things that you have in common with them, especially when they get old enough to start thinking you're the dumbest person they've ever met. Uh, And I think I went through that phase with my father, but we would always have baseball and you know, he would hit pop flies. He actually played some, some, uh, I don't know, it would have been beyond minor leagues, uh, oh. but was uh, a member of a team that played into his uh, young adulthood. And so he would hit me pop flies for, you know, hours on end if I wanted to, because he would go as long as I would go <laughs> in terms of playing ball. I never had the opportunity to play on a team because I grew up in the sticks in the middle of nowhere in central Kansas. And so didn't really have have nine people to make (laughs) a baseball team there. You know, we'd put games (laughs) together just with my my family. And fortunately, the large uh, number of siblings I had helped in that regard. But it wasn't what you'd call an organized game. So uh, certainly that love of baseball has never left me. And it turned out that that dad ended up being good friends with Freddie Patek, who was the shortstop for the Kansas City Royals during that period. And I had all kinds of phenomenal opportunities to be there for batting practice and to go into the clubhouse and meet Lou Pinella and and uh, uh, the various teammates on Freddie's teams over the years. So that's, I think, where the seeds were planted. But having that, again, that common language, that thing that goes beyond words, that's, to me, what sports and sporting events are all about. So it's a, a deeply held and emotional base from which I operate when we talk about sports. Uh, and I think that that's what ties generations together, you know, and it goes for sons and daughters mothers and fathers, grandmothers and grandfathers. It really does have that generational pull 
And believe you me, it's a bit of an adjustment when you sit down with your 13-year-old to play video games instead of going outside to play catch, but the same fundamentals apply. It's time spent doing something that your child enjoys doing as much as you do. Well, I think that's the place I'm in right now with my own 11-year-old as well, so I understand that. And I have to say, when we started this recording, I didn't expect the name Lou Pinella to be coming up during <laughs> this podcast. So that's They're not that's doing, nice Jason. Well. They're chanting Lou. <laughs> no, I had that experience. The very first game I ever went to was in Yankee Stadium where Lou Pinella was playing, and uh, we had to have that explained to us when, <laughs> when Lou came up. Well, it's uh, just those amazing memories of time spent with loved ones and time spent with games. I think those are the the strongest pull uh, that both traditional sports and esports offer. So, mm-hmm. have there been any uh, sports events? Obviously, you've had the chance to be at many, as have I. Are there any that come to mind when you think of maybe most memorable sports event that you were a part of in person? Well, I, we were talking about the Olympics earlier and the, the Vancouver Winter Olympics stood out to me. I had the opportunity to be at the opening ceremonies and uh, the first several days of the games. Uh, and it, again, it's, it's on another level. It's really sporting events at the next level when you're talking about the Olympics and Paralympics. Uh, so those types of memories are the ones that stick out. But as you, you know, as you talk about the family ties, I remember taking my older son when he was a toddler to Indian Wells for the tennis tournament. And, uh, it, you know, having that sort of mix of exposing your children to sports that, you know, maybe they'll take it up. That's always been an exciting part of it. And of course, you know, what would summer be without a Dodger dog? Uh, So those are are the kinds of of memories that just last a lifetime. So you if it's sports, I'm there. Just bring it on, Jason. I love all events. Well, the nice part is that you'll have the opportunity to have your Dodger dogs uh, this summer now that the events are coming back. So I I hope you get I was devastated to hear that Farmer John is no longer going to be the manufacturer of the uh, Dodger dog, but uh, I'm sure whoever they've selected for this next go round will produce one tasty dog. As you know, we live in a world where that is legitimate news and uh, of genuine concern uh, for sports fans <laughs> in and around the Los Angeles area and beyond. Well, um, Tim, this has been a lot of fun. We obviously get a chance to talk on a fairly regular basis, but not exactly formalized, if you will, (laughs) like this setting here. But it has, as it always is, uh, been a pleasure to spend some time with you and talk a little bit about where your organization began and uh, more importantly, where where the industry began and and where it's headed. It's been, uh, as we said at the outset, kind of a tough year, but also uh, fairly exciting to think about what lies ahead here in the next uh, months and years to come, especially as we start to get on the other side of, of this entire pandemic. The pleasure is all mine, Jason. I appreciate you taking some time to have this chat. I want to tell you in the nearly 13 years that I have been proud to call you a colleague, you have done amazing work for the sports-related travel industry uh, obviously, for North Star sports brands, sports travel teams, eSports Travel Summit, a sports travel road trip, you have been an amazing contributor 
to the knowledge that's required by this industry and just your overall attitude and approach to it has been phenomenal. And I want to tell you how much I enjoy working with you and what a great resource you are to everyone in the industry. That may be the nicest thing that any guest on the Sports Travel Podcast has ever said to me, Tim. So thank you very much. That's, uh, that's very much appreciated. And thank you for taking the time. And I have a funny feeling that we'll be in touch on a fairly regular basis moving forward. Well, I hope so. If you're <laughs> willing to talk to me again after this, I'll be somewhat surprised. The thank first, you, first of many, Tim. Thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. This has been another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on all your favorite platforms, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Past episodes are also available at sportstravelmagazine.com, which features regularly updated breaking news and in-depth features on stories related to the sports event industry. Be sure to visit us daily at sportstravelmagazine.com, at Sports Travel on Twitter and Instagram, and at Sports Travel Magazine on Facebook and LinkedIn. Until then, this is Jason Gewertz for Sports Travel. Thanks for listening.